No? There we go. Oh, well, hello. Hi, neighbor. <laughs> uh, we're in this series called At the Movies. <clears throat> and first of all, let me tell you, I'm not wearing uh, baby Bjorn backwards here. This is actually a, uh, I, have, I have a brace. I had surgery four weeks ago. And, uh, and so I, uh, I have to wear the brace for another eight weeks or something like that. But I, I'm on the mend and uh, I got a clear scan from the doctor on Friday, so I'm very, very excited. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> and, and let me say thank you to, there are some people uh, at Piedmont Church who are so near and dear to my heart, and so many people have prayed for me. I just want to say thank you so much for, for that. And, and your pastor is such a good guy. He is just such a dear friend of mine. Um, and he came to visit me a couple of times, and, and uh, he got to meet my parents, which is that's a whole experience in and of its own, and I don't want to turn this into a therapy session, so we're just going to move into this series that we're doing called At the Movies, and, and a lot of churches do these in the summertime, because summertime is a time to go to the movies, and has been for uh, the better part of a century, you know? I mean, uh, when, when movies first started, and when air conditioning uh, first be- became a novel thing, one of the first places that you could go that was air-conditioned was a movie theater. And so a lot of people would just go to the movies in the summer just to get out of the heat because they didn't have air conditioning at their house, and so they would, they would come to the movies. And, and consequently, uh, summertime movies tend to be these big blockbuster, lots of explosions and superheroes and people you have no emotional attachment to die, and it's great. It's a big, uh, gigantic experience. And a lot of the movies we're going to talk about in this series are those big blockbuster movies, and then along comes this quiet little documentary about Mr. Rogers. And let me, I, I, don't, I don't think it's playing in Macon yet. I think the, the is it? Okay, it is. All right, so, so you'll need to look it up. Uh, it, it, it's a little bit hard to find in some places, but do yourself a favor and go see this movie. It is magnificent. It may be one of the best documentary films I've ever seen. And, um, and it's about Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. Now, if there's a, a more bland name in the world than Fred Rogers, I don't know what it is, unless it would be bland vanilla. But, you know, <clears throat> Fred Rogers was an amazing man. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this. He was a, a music major in college. He grew up outside of Pittsburgh, was a music major, but then he went to seminary. He was actually ordained as a Presbyterian minister. Um, uh, he, he would have turned 90 back in March. And uh, he was, uh, there were some fascinating things about uh, Mr. Rogers, you learn. He was red, green, colorblind. A lot of people didn't know that. He, um, <clears throat> he swam, you saw the, the footage of him swimming, he swam every morning. That was his exercise routine. He became a vegetarian in his mid-40s, and this was his quote. He said, I don't ever want to eat anything that has a mother. And if there's a more Mr. Rogers thing to say than that, I can't think of what it is. I don't want to eat anything that has a mother. The sweaters, you know, he would always come in and he would put those sweaters on. Those sweaters were actually knit by his mother. And he would, he would begin each episode, he would come in, he would sit down, he would take his shoes off and he'd put sneakers on. And this is one of the things that I love about him that I didn't even think about until not too long ago. I thought he always took the time to tie his shoes. Which, again, it, like, like she said, if you took everything that's a successful formula for a television program and did the opposite, that's what you would get. It, the idea that we would watch a man tying his shoes. 
But one of the great things that that reveals to me, Mr. Rogers on his TV show was never in a hurry about anything. He was never in a rush about anything. I have a friend whose dad traveled a lot for business, and he never bought shoes with laces. He only wore slip-on shoes because, according to him, that was wasted time getting through the airport and everything. I'm not making this up. He died of a heart attack at age 51. So the moral of the story is tie your shoes. Tie your shoes. Take your time. Uh, Mr. Rogers never did a single commercial endorsement, although numerous companies, Burger King famously, uh, tried to use his image and, and his face and his, the idea of Mr. Rogers to sell uh, their, their products. He never would allow that. He was ne never did a commercial endorsement. He won four Emmys, and he, in 1997, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Emmy Awards. And uh, if you have never seen that, acceptance speech, you ought to look it up. Go to YouTube and just, you know, plug in Mr. Rogers' Lifetime Achievement. Uh, he received this award, and, and Esquire magazine had a reporter named Tom Judode who uh, described <clears throat> what happened. He said, Mr. Rogers walked on stage to accept the award, and there, in front of all the soap opera stars and talk show sinceratrons, in front of all the jutting man-tanned jaws and jutting saltwater bosoms, he made his small bow and said into the microphone, all of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take along with me 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? 10 seconds of silence. And then he lifted his wrist, looked at the audience and said, I'll watch the time. And then there was silence. And at first, he says, there was, a, a, there was a small whoop from the crowd, a giddy, strangled hiccup of laughter as people realized that he wasn't kidding, that Mr. Rogers was not some convenient eunuch. Mr. Rogers was a man, an authority figure, who actually expected them to do what he asked. And so they did. One second. Two seconds three seconds, and now the jaws clenched, and the bosoms heaved, and the mascara ran, and the tears fell upon the beglittered gathering like rain leaking down a crystal chandelier, and Mr. Rogers finally looked up from his watch and said softly, may God be with you. Now, if there's one word we tend to associate with Mr. Rogers, what would that one word be? Neighbor. Hi, neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? It's a beautiful day for a neighbor. He's saying this over and over again, said this over and over again, neighbor. And neighbor is a great word. I spent some time, uh, I've spent the last four weeks recuperating from my surgery, mostly at my parents' house. They live in a ranch-style house. There's no stairs, so it was easy for me to get around there. And my mother like a lot of mothers, has so many old photographs just stuffed into every drawer you open. There's an old photograph. So I started remembering some of the neighborhoods I lived in. The very first neighborhood I lived in was in West Monroe, Louisiana. My father was the academic dean of a, a seminary there. It's now defunct. But he uh, lived 
in, the, in this neighborhood where everyone, literally everyone in the neighborhood was on the faculty of that seminary. I'm not making this up. The name of the neighborhood was Happy Acres. And the name of the street was Love Street. That's where I grew, I grew up on Love Street in Happy Acres. And everyone, I'm not kidding, you know, which probably explains some things. But uh, uh, the, the people next door, that was Bill and Margaret Smith. He was the pastor of the church that we went to. Uh, up the road was, uh, they were the Starlings. And I can name every single house in that neighborhood. There were the Starlings, there were the Watkins, no, the Watsons. The Watkins lived elsewhere. Um, uh, the Youngs, Jim and Joanne, and their son Tim Young. I was the best man in his wedding. Then there were the Seals, then there were the Whitmires, then there were the Sartains, the Morgans. Let me see, as I work my way back through, there were the Morans, the Allisons, Carl Allison, who had been a star football player and baseball player at the University of Oklahoma. And then just past them were the Myers on the other side. I can name everybody in that neighborhood. Lifelong friends. About 10 years ago, I took my daughters. I have three daughters. Uh, they're now 18, 16, and 14. And they sing in perfect harmony, not off pitch like Chris's kids. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I took them to West Monroe, Louisiana, and, and uh, I took them to see the house where I grew up, or where I lived the first 10 years of my life, and uh, uh, Mr. Smith, Bill Smith, was out in his uh, driveway, and so we pulled up, and, and we, he started telling my daughters stories about me when I was a little boy, and about my dad, uh, and, and what kind of neighbor my, my dad was. It, we used to borrow things from them, and they would borrow things from us. They would show up at the door and ask for a cup of flour or for half a cup of sugar or for whatever it was that they needed, lawn tools, lawn mowers, whatever. We used to borrow from one another, and we used to lend easily to one another. And every parent in that subdivision was authorized to discipline every child <laughs> in that neighborhood. You know, that was that, We were neighbors. We were a tight-knit group. Several years ago, I was uh, in Colorado. I was speaking at a church there called Foothills Community Church uh, in Arveda, Colorado. It's a suburb outside of Denver. And, uh, and one of the guys that I interacted with, who's a guy on staff there, was a guy named Dave Runyon. Dave has co-authored a, a book called The Art of Neighboring, uh, which is a fantastic book if you have never read it and, and you need something to read this summer. I highly recommend it. Well, Dave... Uh, was part of this initiative in 2009-2010 of 70 churches, which represented about 40,000 people. 70 churches came together, and the church leaders went to the mayor's office, and they said, we want uh, to help Denver. We want to bless Denver. We want this to be the best place in America to live. What can we do to help? What are the biggest, most pressing needs you have, and how could we throw ourselves into that so that the, 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 the entire city and the entire region, the metro area of Denver, would be blessed by the fact that you have all these churches here? And the mayor told them, you know, this is a sort of embarrassingly simple, but may, maybe the thing that we need most is more citizens who are good neighbors, the mayor told them that. He said, you see, uh, what makes a city a good city 
We have to have industry, we have to have businesses, we have to have infrastructure and hospitals and, and good schools, all that kind of stuff. But you know what we really need is a high percentage of good neighborhoods. And you know what makes for a good neighborhood? A bunch of good neighbors. That would be the most uh, 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 impacting thing you could do for us is teach your people how to be better neighbors. See, when, when, uh, when you're a good neighbor, elderly people get cared for and watched out for. You could take an at-risk youth, move them into a good neighborhood, and they become less at risk. Test scores go up, crime drops, people take better care of their lawns, which means the property values rise. He said most of the problems we have as a city could be significantly reduced if we just had more people who were good neighbors. And I remember hearing that and thinking, man, if only the Bible had something to say about our neighbors. Maybe if Jesus had said something about neighbors and how we should interact with our neighbors, maybe then you know, we, we, we could do something as a church. Now, this is not a small thing for Jesus. If you've read anything about Jesus, if you've read Jesus' words at all as they are recorded for us in the New Testament, you know, neighboring wasn't a, a, a subtle thing. It wasn't a, an obscure point. It wasn't a throwaway line at the end of a sermon. Neighboring was front and center for Jesus. It was very, very high on his priority list. In fact, one of the most famous uh, stories about Jesus is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, a, uh, a religious leader came to Jesus and he said, hey, um, what, what is the greatest commandment of all? You know, we got 631 laws here, Jesus. Can you, could you sum it up for us? And Jesus said, okay, here's what it is. The greatest commandment in the law. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And if he had stopped right there, that would have been a fantastic answer. See, Jesus was a rabbi. That's one of the things that people called him when they approached him. They called him a rabbi, which is a teacher, right? So, so uh, a good rabbi knew the scriptures and he knew that this text, love the Lord your God with everything you've got, was one of the seminal, foundational, most essential texts for all the Jewish people. This goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we're all familiar with those words that say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you should love him for all your worth. Love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. <clears throat> People would have heard that and they would have said, good job, Jesus. You have demonstrated that you are a rabbi who knows what he is talking about. But Jesus did not stop there. This was the, the, the foundational text, the Shema, they called it. This was one of the, they would pray that prayer when they got up in the morning and when they went to bed at night, they would teach their children. This would be one of the first things they would teach their children was to pray the Shema. But then Jesus adds to it. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Well, I didn't ask you for two, Jesus. 
but I can't detach these. The second one is just like it, just as valuable as it. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything the law teaches you comes back to these two things. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has added to this. And people thought, well, why would you? Who gave you authority to add to the Shema? This would be like if we stood to recite the Pledge of Allegiance and we said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, especially people in Macon, Georgia. Well, nobody said you could add that last part, right? Who gave you authority to add that last part? Nobody. And yet, Jesus adds to it. This is so important to him because there's this running theme in Judaism. And Jesus was Jewish, by the way. Sometimes people will ask about that. Jesus was Jewish. And, uh, and there's this running theme kind of in the background of all of Judaism that Jesus takes and teases to the surface and states explicitly. And the theme is this. You can't really love God if you don't love your neighbor. The two are tied together inextricably. You can't detach one from the other no matter how many times you want to. Right? We want to say, well, I love God because no one can really check on that, right? But Jewish people knew your love for God was demonstrated by how you love your neighbor. Jesus fuses these things together uh, explicitly. And he doesn't just say this once. Although if Jesus says something once, it's important. But Jesus actually is recorded saying this eight different times. So often, in fact, that it became known as the great commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And all men will know you really are my followers by the love you demonstrate for one another. You can't just take the vertical. It has to be tied to the horizontal. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, uh, he says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, whatever other commandments there may be, they're all summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else falls under that. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love seeks good for your neighbor. Love is that important that Jesus says, you cannot succeed at life if you fail at love. Likewise, if you succeed at love, you can't fail at life. So what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, love is not mushy feelings or fondness or affection. Love is not desire. There, there are a lot of things that I desire that I don't love. Because love, probably the best definition of love I've ever heard, love is to will good for the other person. As God defines good. Love is to will and to work for the best interests of the other person. 
and there are lots of things that I desire that I do not will good for, that I do not intend good for. There is a, a, a string of places, a chain of places, I hesitate to call them restaurants, uh, a cafe of sorts, uh, a uh, patisserie, a, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a, it's Krispy Kreme. Um, and when that hot sign is on, they take this ring of dough and they fry it and they send it under this shower, this cascade of a sugary glaze. And when you get there and they are warm, they are perhaps, in my opinion, the greatest argument for the existence of a benevolent creator in our universe. Amen. I desire Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't love them. I don't hover over them, willing their good intent. Right? I don't work towards the, 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 their best. I, I want to eat them is what I want to do. I will eat them all gone. So love is not desire. Uh, love is willing and working for the best interests of someone else as God defines their best interests. I want them to be their best selves. I'm, and I'm willing to work for that. Love your neighbor, Jesus says. Will their good, intend their good, work for their best interests as God defines their best interests. Love your neighbor, not a cause, not an abstract group of marginalized people who are conveniently located on the opposite side of the globe where I will probably never run into them. Love your neighbor, your real-life, flesh-and-blood, imperfect, sometimes difficult person who lives near you. Neighbor is, a, is an interesting word. It's a compound word. It comes from two old words, nigh, to draw nigh, it means to come near, right? So near, boer, which is an old Germanic, a Dutch word, still used in some places, which means to dwell. Your near dwellers, the boar next door is your neighbor. And I worry sometimes that in churches, we've gone so far in trying to impress upon you the need to love people who aren't like you, to love those boys in Thailand who are trapped in that cave, to love those people in Guatemala whose lives have been demolished by the, the natural disasters that have occurred there recently, to love people who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't act like you, to love someone in the opposite political party, to love the other. Sometimes we've pushed that, and rightfully so, but we've pushed that so far that we forget to start with the person next door. We're willing literally to travel land and sea to share the good news of Jesus and to share the kindness of God and the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus, we'll share that with someone in a third world nation. We won't even do that with the person who lives across the street. In fact, here's something that uh, um, uh, when the, uh, Dave Runyon was talking to the city officials, this came from a city manager. The, this, the associate city manager said this, from the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. That 
is painful to read. We don't neighbor any differently than non-Christians. And that's a problem. See, if city officials are saying the number one need is good neighbors, and if we're being told that we don't really neighbor any differently than non-Christians, and if Jesus says this is the greatest commandment of all, well, maybe we need to talk about this a little bit. Because the idea is not just that we come here once a week to sing songs and to listen to a little talk about Jesus that was interesting and made us think. The idea is that we would actually leave this place and, and do what Jesus actually tells us to do. It's not just about coming here and learning it's about going and doing. That's what church is for. That's what a Sunday morning gathering is for. So we can come here and we can hear the words of Jesus and the will of God for your life. And then we could go and actually do what Jesus tells us to do and ask God to help us as we do that. So here's what I want you to do. I want to get really, really practical on this idea of neighboring. So get, take out your, uh, your, your program here. You got a little program or a bulletin. I don't know exactly what you guys call it. It's welcome is what it says here. Most of you got one of these when you walked in. And there's a, there's a whole little page here devoted to notes. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I'm going to give you some homework. I told Jerry while he was gone, I was going to try to start a movement at his church. And he, <laughs> and he was like, well, I, uh, I don't know what to do with that. And I was like, well, tough luck. You're out of town, buddy. So... Um, <laughs> So I want you to get this notes section, and I want you to do this. I want you to draw, uh, uh, I don't even know what to call it anymore. When I was growing up, we called it a tic-tac-toe. And then later we called it a pound, and now it's a hashtag. So I guess draw a hashtag, right? <laughs> for those of you who are children of the millennium. So draw a little hashtag sign, and, uh, and in the center of it, that's your house. And some of you are thinking, well, I live in a, an apartment, so I'm off the hook. Adapt. Come on, you guys are smart. So, um, so your house is in the center uh, uh, box, the center square. You've got neighbors that live there, 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 and there. And it, some of you are overachievers, so you want extra credit. So put those and those and those in there, too, if you need it. But, but here's what I want you to do. Think about your neighbors, your nigh-bores. Think about the people who dwell near you. And I want you to see, if you can, write the names of the people who live next to you. I'll be like Mr. Rogers. I'll watch the time. Go ahead. Don't stop looking at me. Think about it. Write them down. Some of you are not doing this. This isn't television. I can see you sitting there looking at me with your arms crossed. I, I see you, right? Do this. We should be playing like the Mr. Rogers theme song, shouldn't we? Like, ding, 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 ding. I'm waiting. 
I should be tying my shoes, maybe. All right, how many of you were able to do that? To write down the names of the people? You've got one, one over there? You know, uh, uh, Dave Runyon said about 10% of the people uh, can do this, and that's it. Um, in fact, what, you know, the, the little chart that you've drawn now, Dave calls that the chart of shame. Because it's convicting, isn't it? You have not because you ask not. Um, if you can't do that, if you couldn't do that exercise, here's your homework. Go meet your neighbors. Go meet them. Not like don't send your spouse out to do. You go and you literally, physically meet your neighbors. Hey, my name's John. I've been living in this place for a couple of years. I, I see you guys all the time. I've never introduced myself. My name's John. Meet your neighbors. Now, this will be easier for some people. Uh, uh, for people like me, I'm, I, people don't believe this because they only see me up here, but I'm what is known as a gregarious introvert. So I know how to be on stage. This takes a lot of energy out of me. By nature, I'm a very introverted person. And so if you're more like me, if you're an introvert, the thought of doing this scares you. It, it makes you fill with anxiety. And that's okay. This will be hard for you. God sees that. God knows that. God will be compassionate on you. And God will empower you to do this. Those of you who are extroverts, you can't wait to do this. You've been wait, wanting to do this. You're, you've got permission now, and so you're very excited about doing this. This will be easier for you. Please do not get judgy with the rest of us, because surely God will judge you much more severely. So here's what you do. You go and you meet your neighbors. You learn at least their name. And at least start by learning their name. Uh, it's really hard to love someone if you don't know their name, right? Uh, what do you Hey, you. Love you. Bro. You know, like actually know their, learn their names and then begin to pray for them. Pray for their good. Pray for God's will to be done in their lives. You know, when, when Jesus' friends ask him to teach them how to pray, he prays in, in a very specific way. He says, uh, uh, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God doesn't teach us to pray, get me out of here, God. Beam me up, Scotty, kind of prayers. Instead, Jesus teaches us to pray for up there to come down here, for, for, for our neighborhoods, for our uh, uh, cities to look more like heaven, to look more like the kingdom of God. So, so how do you begin to pray for the kingdom to come, for God's will to be done in your neighborhood, with your neighbors? You learn their names. And you pray for God's will to be done. This is, and, and then you start doing things like just the golden rule. Whatever you would want people to do to you, you know, do to them. Treat people the way you want them to treat you. This isn't rocket science. This, you don't have to have advanced degrees or an impressive resume to just be friendly. You know, it's, it's weird. There's one day out of the year 
here in America, when we actually go and knock on the door of the people in our neighborhood. You know what that day is? It's Halloween, right? Halloween may be the most neighborly. It takes this weird pagan holiday that we all love to celebrate to get us to do something that Jesus told us to do. How bizarre is that? What if you went and knocked on your next door neighbor's house or like knocked on their door and it wasn't Halloween and you weren't asking them for anything except their name? Be a good neighbor. Be friendly towards them. And sometimes this is going to mean bearing with one another, right? It's going to mean forgiving. In fact, Jesus takes these two verses, one from Deuteronomy 6, and the other is from Leviticus 19. And I want you to see this. In Leviticus 19, this is the original context. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. It's originally given in the context of you have something against your neighbor, and God says, don't hold a grudge. Love them. And then why? Because the, the, the last part of that is because I'm the Lord. Because I'm your God. Now, this was revolutionary. Um, uh, nobody ever said, Zeus is God, therefore love your neighbor. Molech is your Lord, and so therefore you should love your neighbor. That's, but it's because God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is your God. That's why you should love your neighbor. And I know it's hard. I, everybody, every neighborhood has at least one cranky, irritable, hard-to-get-along-with person. And if you can't identify who that person is in your neighborhood, then it's probably you. But God says, don't hold a grudge. Give them love. Give them grace. Because I am your God, love your neighbor. In, and, and, and it's important to remember that it's because God has given you love. So you can't give something away that you don't have. And so John, one of the original followers of Jesus, says this, we love because he first loved us. He's given you love. He's given you peace. He's given you joy so much that you have love to spare your neighbor. When your neighbor comes over and asks to borrow a cup of sugar or whatever, you give it to him because you have so much love that God has poured into your heart that it's overflowing. And of course, you give to your neighbor. And it shows itself in, in really, really practical ways. Again, going back to the Proverbs. Don't say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow, I'll give it to you then, when you already have it with you. If you have something, loan it. And if you need something, borrow it. Simple, really practical things. In Exodus chapter 22, we're told, if anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it's injured or dies while the owner isn't present, you have to make restitution. Well, now we don't borrow our animals from our neighbor. In fact, what we, we loan them our animals when we go out of town, right? Hey, can you cat sit for me while I'm out of town or can you dog sit for me? So, but, but think about this. Notice your neighbor's animals. Be nice to them. Be kind to them. Notice the, their animals. 
Notice the family pet. Proverbs 14, verse 21 says, uh, it's a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Think about that. It's a sin. Anybody ever remember that being the memory verse when you were growing up? Anyone ever heard a sermon that references that? It's a sin to despise your neighbor. Don't withdraw from your neighbors. Don't despise them. One of the best things you can do to be a good neighbor is just be curious. Not in a, like, Mrs. Kravitz, peek through the blind sort of way, but just get really, just get really curious. Ask them questions. Hey, what brought you here? Are you from here originally? How, if, you, if you see a couple, you know, ask them, how'd you two meet? I love asking that question because you get to hear such great stories. Hey, how'd you two meet? By the way, if you have people in your neighborhood who are living together who aren't married, you are not obligated to remind them that they are living in sin. This would not be what a good neighbor does because Jesus never said pronounce judgment and prompt behavior modification to your neighbor. He says love your neighbor. Bake something for them. Invite them over to watch the game. Uh, tell them that you're, you're available to, you know, to, to get, collect their mail while they're out of town or whatever. Mow their lawn. Do something. You know, be, be a good neighbor. Leviticus 19 Verse 32 says, stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. This doesn't have anything to do with neighbors. I'm just getting old. And this verse means a lot more to me now than it used to. But think about that. No, is there an elderly person in your neighborhood? What if you just watched out for them? See, see when you love them, Jesus says, you're loving God. For in as much as you have done it to the least of these. And let me tell you, in our society, elderly people are often considered the least of these. And Jesus says, when you love them, you're loving me. See, Jesus opens this up to the whole world, and the world has never been the same. And, and let me just wrap up by saying this. Why do we do this? Well, Jesus' uh, friend, John, uh, tells us something. And these verses are oftentimes read at funerals. But, but I want to read them here. Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you with me. So you can be where I am. In the end... Whose neighborhood are you going to live in? Jesus. That's the answer. It's church. Jesus. Ultimately, you are moving into Jesus' neighborhood. And when you move in, Jesus will not say, oh, there goes the neighborhood. No, Jesus will walk over to your house and say, hey, won't you be my neighbor? The whole incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, the whole point of it was because he wants to be your neighbor and he will go to ridiculous lengths to
to demonstrate the reckless love of God that says, I want everyone here to be my neighbor, to live in my neighborhood. And I don't care what people say it's going to do to the property values. And I don't care that our neighborhood is going to be all mixed up and every house is going to be a different color and everybody's going to be speaking a different language. I want everyone in my neighborhood. I want to be neighbors with everybody. I was, uh, I was talking to King earlier before the service, and King says that about 65 households call Piedmont Church home, give or take, 65. So let's suppose we got 65 different households spread out across the, the, the Macon area, and every one of those households has uh, somebody here, 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 and here. So that's, uh, and let's say there are three people. We'll be conservative. Three people in every one of those houses. So that's one, two, three, four, five. Five times three is 15. 65 times 15, 975. You look around this room and you think, what's God going to do with us?